0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Look, I I have to take just a quick moment uh, to to promote uh, Bulwark Plus and and my newsletter today. Um, Well, not so much my newsletter as the illustration in the newsletter by our brilliant art director, Hannah Yost, who um, put together the painting, The Staff of the October Revolution, with superimposed picture of Bill Crystal. Now, this is kind of inside baseball. I understand this, but there's an Arizona state senator named Wendy Rogers, who is not at all completely batshit crazy, who put out a tweet yesterday saying, I'll I'll, I'll just read it. Bill Kristol, son of Trotskyite communist Irving Kristol, is attacking me for fighting for election integrity and for praising Glenn Youngkin for supporting forensic audits. Stealing elections is a very communist practice that we Americans reject Bill, maybe move to Venezuela. Um, so first of all, yeah, Bill Crystal, that well-known neoconservative uh, Trotskyite communist. <laughs> but also, I would really pay good money to hear Wendy Rogers define Trotskyite. I would just like to hear her discuss the history of that, what that all means. My point in the newsletter, though, is we just need a better quality of, of of insults. I mean, we've, we've dumbed everything down. We, and I, I do think it's among the, the worst things that Trump has done is he's shrunk in the vocabulary of our democracy, to the level of a, of a sixth grade mouth breeder. I mean, seriously, <laughs> it's, just, could we have, could we have a muse of invective to just help just raise the level if we're going to, we're going to throw this stuff around. It's, you know, Arizona congressmen throwing around Trotskyite communists. And then of course you have this contest in the state of Ohio, between Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance, who can put out the dumbest, dumbest possible tweets. So um, welcome back to the podcast, David Priest, COO of Lawfare. Good to have you back again. Hello.
1: And I'll put in a plug here too for for your newsletter that people (laughs) need to be seeing. And I mean seeing because (laughs) that image, the the iconic (laughs) image of of Trotsky seated at the table and the other communist leaders at the time of mm-hmm. the october revolution in russia all around
0: him and then
1: the beaming <laughs> smiling bill crystal it is priceless
0: it is quite cl- well you know hannah H- 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 yost is one of our um is one of our genius uh, staff members who is just she's got this well-stocked mind and so i i put together this this random newsletter and she immediately is able to put together the the art so that we have so much to talk about today I want to talk about the Claremont Institute trying to gaslight America mm. by retconning the role of their uh, their senior fellow, um, the seditionist John Eastman. I think that's interesting. Um, we have a lot of back and forth about uh, how things are going with the January 6th committee. Uh, but I want to back up a little bit, and I know that it's Tuesday and this took place on Friday, but... Um, I, I just, in, in case people haven't heard it, Bill Maher uh, had a, I think it was like an eight-minute monologue about the slow-rolling coup. And whatever you think about Bill Maher, and I'm guessing that most of you have very mixed feelings about Bill Maher, I thought I thought this was a a must-watch uh, episode, and I thought that he made, uh, well, I, actually I thought he was just you know dead-on. Here here is his prediction for the future. This is Bill Maher from from Friday Night.
1: Here's the easiest three predictions in the world. Trump will run in 2024, he will get the Republican nomination,
0: and whatever happens on election night, the next day he will announce that he won. Mm -hmm. I've been saying ever since he lost, he's like a shark that's not gone, just gone out to sea. (laughs) But actually, he's been quietly eating people this whole time.
1: And by eating people, I mean he's been methodically purging the Republican Party of anyone who voted for his impeachment or doesn't agree that he's the rightful leader of the Seven Kingdoms.
0: little, little Game of Thrones reference there. So, David, he's absolutely right there, isn't he?
1: He's, he's right up to a point. I, I agree with him on the first prediction. I agree with him on the second <laughs> prediction, barring something dramatic. And the third prediction we already have evidence of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is what he does. Anytime something doesn't go his way, he he claims it's fake. So I don't think that's much of a prediction uh, as much as it's just acknowledging reality. But I disagree with what he he said there at the end of the quote, which is that Trump has been involved in a methodological purging Mm. of the party. Trump doesn't do anything methodologically. Um, Trump has not been doing this. The party has been methodologically purging itself. This is a dynamic that Trump was a part of, perhaps a catalyst for the dynamic, but you're giving Trump way too much credit. If you're saying that since the, since his defeat, he has been sitting there like snidely whiplash, the villain of the old days, twirling his mustache, plotting this. No, he has not been he's been occasionally putting out messages, which then get disseminated to the party, but people aren't treating those as guidance from on high They're already doing that kind of purging, and this just encourages them to keep doing it. All
0: right, I I I think this is an important point here. I I do think I think think it was Chris Krebs, uh, the uh, cybersecurity uh, Mm -hmm. chief of elections under under Donald Trump, who was fired for saying that the election was was fair and free. Um, Over the weekend, he said Republicans have lost control of this. I mean, this is a conflagration and that it may look like they're the leaders, but right now um, it's uh, it's gone beyond anything they expected. Maybe they thought it was going to be you know, a small controlled burn. Maybe they thought they were going to have a campfire, and now it's a raging forest fire, and they just try to stay in front of it. So you look at people like Steve Scalise, or you look at people like, uh, like Chuck Grassley, um, they are right now, they're supposedly the leaders of the Republican Party, but um, a real sign of their weakness is the fact that they are afraid to mm-hmm. tell their own followers, their own constituents, the truth. Right. Um, and and you're right about Donald Trump. Um, you know he may be you know feeding the fire and pouring kerosene on it, but um, he's as much a follower as a leader here. Absolutely. And, and 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 I and I don't and I'm watching in one state after another where. I mean, look, I mean, to be honest, David, most elected Republicans know this is bullshit. I mean, they, they know the election wasn't wasn't fake. They know that the audit is basically just, you know, red meat they throw to their base. But they figure, you know what, we'll we'll appease them and we'll move on. And I don't think they realize how the flames are getting higher and higher and they are no longer able to really guide it. I mean, here in Wisconsin, you have a MAGA world, you know, at each other's throats, you know, because you know, one faction doesn't think the other faction is crazy enough or extreme enough. And who knows where this goes?
1: Who knows where yeah, it goes? The person who's spoken most clearly on this, I think, is Representative Adam Kinzinger of mm-hmm. Illinois, who speaks right. very clearly about the, the danger of letting fear drive your choices and, frankly, the moral cowardice of letting fear drive your choices, especially on political matters. And he's made the point very well that is, is good in theory, but it's getting increasingly hard in practice, which is it's not up to people like him and Liz Cheney, people who stand by what they think are the core principles of the Republican Party they grew up in, saying Donald Trump and all of these people at the state and local level who are outbidding themselves to be more MAGA, they're the ones who need to explain themselves. They're the ones who need to admit that they're not really Republicans. Meanwhile, they're on an increasingly small sliver of the Island being driven into the sea. And it becomes even harder. It just amps up the tension for those remaining Republicans who tell the truth and are committed to telling the truth. Uh, they are still Republicans. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are they welcome in their own caucus? No. no. Are they increasingly unpopular in their districts? Probably. The tension is high and it's going to be a very difficult couple of years to remain a Republican, and even try to say, I am the standard bearer for the party, at least for its traditional ethics and principles. When you have people like Governor Abbott in Texas suddenly talking about you know, taking control over local mandates and doing the opposite of conservative principles, it can't just be a representative from Illinois and a representative from Wyoming standing up and saying we are the party. Eventually, the squeeze is going to affect how that plays
0: out. Well, and and to the extent that it appears that there's something, you know, um, uh, that there's a method to to Trump's madness, he, he is targeting, you know, each and every one of the principled Republicans that speaks out against this. Uh, he's really become addicted to threatening people. I I see now that he's threatening a primary challenge to the Republican Speaker of the House in Texas for not moving fast enough on one of these bogus audits. I mean, it really is. It is incredible. Uh, So uh, let's talk about the January 6th committee uh, briefly. Uh, You folks at Lawfare had a really detailed article about all of the activities. There was a, a brief panic last week when there was a suggestion, which I don't believe was accurate now in retrospect, that the, the committee was not going to enforce its uh, subpoenas with criminal referrals. Um, so give me your take on how that's proceeding and uh, whether uh, how optimistic you are that they will get to the bottom of this.
1: Yeah, I will be glad here to channel the the excellent thinking and work of Quinta Jurassic and Molly Reynolds, both uh, fellows at the Brookings Institution who who work with us at Lawfare Analyzing, Congress, and the 1-6 Committee, and add my own thoughts here too as well. But the, their basic point is that the, the committee is not doing anything flashy. It's not holding hearings as it did initially. And so therefore, the assumption is it's really not doing much. And they say, hold on. Uh, if, if If you look at it and that's what you see, you need to look a little bit further, because there's a lot going on. The massive document request that they gave that the Biden administration has said, we are not going to assert executive privilege on behalf of the former administration. So National Archives and Records Administration, go, you know, give them all the data. The subpoenas going out to many people who will be asked to provide information, records, and perhaps ultimately testimony. Those are proceeding. So the visual we're looking at here for your next newsletter, the visual we're looking at here is that proverbial duck who is gliding smoothly across the water so much so that you you don't even perceive in your peripheral vision that there is any movement. But under the water, paddling, 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 doing <laughs> a whole lot of work. Now, the usual interpretation of that visual is a whole lot of work to create something serene. I mean it in the different yeah. way, which is you're just not seeing all the work that's going on that is going to lead to some very productive information, some very productive discussions, and hopefully some very productive action at some point late this year or very early next year.
0: so what what will they do? What do you think they should do about any of the Maga world folks like Steve Bannon who refused to honor the subpoenas? One
1: of the biggest issues in the previous administration, was the blatant disregard for the rule of yep. law, the mm-hmm. idea that the rules do not apply to us for, for various reasons. And it would shock me if the members of this committee who span the ideological spectrum, but are committed first and foremost to country over party, to the rule of law, if they do not use every means at their disposal to enforce subpoenas and ensure that they get the information they need. On, on one end of that spectrum, could be long court battles and we clearly saw that a lot over the last 4 years. I think they're going to not just stick to the courts and whatever process they can get expedited through the courts but they're also going to use regular enforcement of subpoenas and and try to get that information if people are unwilling to testify. Uh, my latest understanding is Steve Bannon is one of those who is still yeah. claiming that he doesn't have to say anything, uh, sorry, you're in the United States of America. We do have laws, even if you wanted to upend them and you did not want to support the enforcement of them equally, um, in the last administration, guess what? You still live here and you're still subject to those laws.
0: So here's, here's a good news and bad news. Um, know, two 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 items, uh, good news and bad news. Um, believe it or not, I'm, I'm going to put the Claremont Institute's uh, attempt to whitewash uh, John Eastman in the uh, good news category.
1: We're desperate Be- for good news, aren't
0: we? Well, we are desperate for good news. So, you know, Claremont, which is, you know, uber, uh, you know, uber uh, MAGA, um, is, is now trying to back away saying, well, no, you know, John Eastman didn't really, didn't really. Uh, you know, push, push a coup um, that, you know, contrary to almost universally false news accounts, which have done great damage. John did not ask the vice president um, to overturn the election. Okay. Well, there's a lot of sophistries. There's a lot of overturning. The good news though, is that they feel the need to back away from actual sedition, even though they're being completely dishonest about it. The other little nugget that's buried in there is that the Federalist Society. Has apparently decided that it is done with John Eastman, and the Federalist Society, of course, is this incredibly influential group of conservative lawyers, and they had featured Eastman uh, in many of their, their their events. Of course, you know Eastman, you know wrote. Again, okay, I'm going just back up a little bit. I mean, the reason why this Claremont thing is so ridiculous is because Eastman put it in freaking writing. I mean, it's we have the memo. We know exactly what he wanted to do. Right. But the Federalist Society apparently is saying that. The Federalist Society is refusing to allow John to discuss essential constitutional questions despite his 20 years of involvement with it. So I think that that's good news that Claremont is embarrassed, but even better news, the Federalist Society has decided that they're going to exile the seditionists.
1: Yeah, and there's, there's two different dynamics there. On the Federalist Society side, yes, there are many members of the Federalist Society and perhaps even institutionally um, that are full MAGA, but there are many who are not, and the Federalist Society still has some credibility among the right, um, even those who are not fully Trumpist. So by purging Eastman, this is a way of saying, you know, we 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 are still trying to preserve that part of our credibility, even if we have tainted it in other ways. The Claremont side, I'm frankly quite surprised by this. Um, because of what you said, it is in writing, it's already there. And to claim that, well, he didn't really mean it. That's not what he was saying. It's, it's in print. It's so right the Claremont Institute is either being disingenuous or, yes. or they are literally stupid. And I'm not sure which of those to go with at this point, but there really are no other options because you know, it's it's there in writing. I'm surprised they didn't double down on it, frankly. Um, they've gone so far down that road, and it's such a slippery slope to combine metaphors here. that what? Okay. It's kind of hard to dig your, your fingers in at that point and say that's not what he really said, instead of just saying, you're damn right I ordered the code red. That's exactly what he said, because he was exactly right, and the election was stolen, and we should have followed his procedures because he was correct the whole time. I thought that was a more likely I think
0: you're right. game I for them. Okay, so th- this was the good news. The bad news f- follows along with this because, you know, in in MAGA world, never apologize, never back off, is is usually the the mantra. Um, and uh, you know, look, I, I sometimes have a have a dark view of what's going to happen. I, I have to say that that the timeline we're in right now, there's at least one aspect. I'm going to play the audio. I'm going to warn you about it. It will trigger you. That is the the most dystopian, which is that. Donald Trump is not only doubling down on January 6th, he is really leaning into it as a good thing um, that it was an assault by patriots. And he is very committed to turning Ashley Babbitt into a martyr for the cause. In fact, um, this week was her birthday and the former president of the United States taped a tribute to this woman who was assaulting the Capitol, was among the insurrectionists, was shot by a police officer defending the lives of members of Congress. And Donald Trump, who up until five minutes ago was always, we back the blue, we back the badge, uh, is now all in in uh, defending Ashley Babbitt and turning her into a martyr of the MAGA cause. This is a short soundbite, trigger warning of Donald Trump Uh, Donald Trump's taped tribute to uh, insurrectionist Ashley Babbitt. We must all demand justice for Ashley and her family. Fuck me. So on this solemn occasion, as we celebrate her life, we renew our call for a fair and nonpartisan investigation into the death of Ashley Babbitt. I offer my unwavering support to Ashley's family and call on the Department of Justice to reopen its investigation into her death on January 6th? Well, of course, that's exactly what he said about George Floyd, right? Uh, oh, wait, no, ever. So, David, this is what concerns me the most is that you have the president. Uh, Really celebrating an act of violence against our democracy. So, hmm. uh, of all of the demagogic things that are being said out there, I mean, he's at the he's at the the leading bleeding edge of this, isn't he? It's
1: it's the exposure of that rift between what was called right after uh, January sixth, what was called the difference between teleprompter Trump and Twitter Trump, because you remember after after January sixth, for a few days, maybe a few weeks. He was saying some things that allowed people to nod their heads and say, okay, he's received the message. He's changed things like to those who engage in acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country to those who broke the law, You will pay. Mm -hmm. We must get on with the business of America with words like that you know, Congress has certified the results. My focus turns to ensuring a smooth, orderly, and seamless transition of power. Great words, uh, clearly not Trump's words, but he read them. He said them. Those were things after January 6th that he seemed to be saying about Ashley Babbitt and the rest of the protesters. He has decided that either he has decided that that is not in his best interest to keep saying that, or he He never decided that in the first place. And he was always saying this. And now he's just saying it out loud, saying what he believed from that very minute. Either way, it completely eviscerates anybody who made comments in the days and weeks after January 6th saying, don't worry. You know, Trump realizes this was too far. Look at those wonderful
0: words. He said he gets it. No, he didn't. Well, this is clearly part of the strategy, and uh, I'm not going to, uh, of course, you know, buy into Donald Trump' great, uh, you know, strategist. But there is that reptilian instinct, and the reptilian instinct here is that all revolutions need a martyr, and mm-hmm. he he has seized on all of this. Well, think, okay, look, so, think
1: back to the uh, think back to the Oklahoma City bombing and Timothy you know. McVeigh. In some circles, Timothy McVeigh, who is responsible for heinous death and injuries. Timothy McVeigh was a cult hero and inspired some people to further violence in the future and Ashley Babbitt is quite different than Timothy McVeigh but using her as a symbol is a similar dynamic.
0: Well, I'm thinking back to Horst Wessel but then that's that's just uh, that's just me. Okay, so David, let's talk about uh, the um the, the state of our politics right now, including what's happening in Washington, uh, mm-hmm. where you come down on what I've described as the panic punditry about uh, J- Joe Biden. Let's uh, let's do this right after this. If you're a fan of this podcast or any of our other podcasts here at The Bulwark, I really think you're going to enjoy our newest edition. It's called The Focus Group, and it's hosted by our own Sarah Longwell. Maybe you've heard Sarah talk about these focus groups that she conducts, but now she's actually sharing real audio from the participants. It's a great show, and I know you're going to love it. Again, it's called The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you consume podcasts. Okay, we are back with David Priest from Lawfare. Um, So, David, give me your take on... On how you think things are going, I, I I mentioned this because yesterday seemed to be kind of a high watermark of the boy. You know, Biden is really going down. Uh, his poll numbers are down. There's no question about it. There's a lot of frustration. Democrats are engaged in the circular firing squad. Uh, we've had focus groups that suggest that a lot of Biden supporters are disillusioned. There was one poll, which may have been an outlier, showing his approval rating down to 38 percent. Uh, CBS has him uh, back at fifty percent. So where wh- where are we at? What is what does your gut sense tell you? We are
1: such a long way from the midterms, and certainly from the next presidential election, that I just find myself shaking my head at this hyper concern about every poll coming out. Maybe my memory is bad. Certainly my memory is bad. But I I don't remember back in. The, the late 1980s, the 1990s, even into the 2000s of every week, every day being focused on where the popularity ratings, the opinion polls were and what it meant for the election three years hence. Um, I looked up the statistics because I, I thought I remembered something here that might be relevant. And sure enough, you go back to George H.W. Bush. So we're going old school. He was elected in 1988, took office at the beginning of 1989 and in the fall of his first year in office. So the fall of 1989, that's Mm. the equivalent for where we are now with Joe Biden, the fall of the first year in office, president Bush had a 69% approval rating. Now Mm. this is before the first Gulf war, the liberation of Kuwait that made him even more popular when he topped 90% for the only time in presidential polling history. But this is before that and he was at 69% popularity with only 18% disapproving which is just incredible to imagine now given the era of negative partisanship we're in but again 69 positive negative 18 on the economy he was rated favorably by 55% of respondents and negatively only by 32 okay that's kind of where we are now in terms of looking at poll numbers that point in the presidency he was flying high relatively 1992, in the fall, as people are going to vote, his approval rating was 37%, with a 55% disapproval rating. On the economy, he was rated at 18% favorability, with a 75% negative. It's my way of showing that polls now don't matter unless there is a cascade of events that all reinforce the same narrative. If time and time again, month after month, maybe even week after week, we get news and Biden performance that reinforces exactly the things that respondents are saying they find negative about him, then yes, it does create this momentum and it does lock in some of those views. Short of that, we've got a long way to go because people in polls now are responding to things like, the coronavirus they're responding to things like afghanistan they're responding to things like the democrats on the hill not being able to get their shit together to pass a bill that they've already passed in the house you you've got this issue of all of these things happening at once those things won't all be happening a year from now and certainly in the summer of the next election season for the president so we all need to calm down yeah. a little bit yeah. about where things are and stop trying to predict things year we're not very good at predicting things weeks or days out what gives us the hubris to think we're going to predict an election several years out based on an opinion poll that comes out today
0: well also um we, we need to re- remind ourselves how quickly we forget things right so will Salatin, and i think has an interesting tweet he says here's my prediction we're low ebb in biden's presidency soon the infrastructure and reconciliation bills will pass in some form A year from now, COVID will be largely under control. Supply chains will be restored and the Afghan collapse will be forgotten. I could be wrong, but that's my bet. You know, again, he could be wrong. Um, But but yeah, a lot of the stuff is going to be a long time ago. But you made an interesting point when you said that um, the you know, the the damage can be done if things reinforce an existing narrative. The one area that I'm picking up, though, um, is 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 that the Biden administration is not good at marketing. Um, And there are doubts about uh, Joe Biden's communication skills, and they're not going away. Right. Uh, Yeah. The
1: communications team is, and I'm not pointing a finger at any single individual, but as a whole, the communications team has been horrible because there have been things that have happened that have been positive for a a great number of Americans. Whether you agree with them politically or not, there have been things that have been done in this administration- that are that are goods that can be sold and that selling has not happened it's almost like the deliberate strategy is we're going to quiet down the presidency so much that we hope people kind of forget there's a president we're not well, going to put see, him out there much we're yeah. not going to talk much we're not going to sell his successes we're just gonna gonna walk this back and maybe let Congress take the lead for a change. Well, when Congress takes the lead, you're in trouble.
0: Yeah, if if you're if you're not out there, then um you've created a vacuum. And and I think the biggest message, fail, and I'm certainly not breaking any new ground here, is 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 on this whole uh, spending package. Uh, Tim Miller has a piece up at the bulwark today uh, based on the new CBS poll that shows that only 10% of people even know what you are fighting for. 10% of Americans know, um, really know much about that build back better plan, terrible phrase. They can't tell you what's in it. And, uh, you know, frankly, that's the job of the president. It's I'm seeing on Twitter, well, the media needs to do a better job. No, when you're blaming the media, you're losing. The president needs to do this. And Larry Sabato made this point on the podcast yesterday that Bill Clinton, for all of his flaws, he understood this. He would come out and he would push micro-policies. He would you know, shine the light on, on this or that good thing. Joe Biden's team and the Democrats just haven't done it. So all we know is that it's $3.5 trillion, this big boatload of money, which does as much, I, I think, messaging for the Republicans as it does for the Democrats right now.
1: What do you think? Yeah, yeah what's missing is... The bumper sticker. And yeah. and Larry, Larry led yeah. to this with his comments yeah. yesterday. Yeah. But you think about some of the greater successes in passing legislation and uh enacting policy in the last several decades. Again, whether you agree with them policy-wise or not, but they can be boiled down often to two words. Um, reduce crime, lower taxes, fight terrorism, uh, provide health care. You have a bill that may be thousands of pages that may have all kinds of nuance that can be picked apart. But when the president and the president's communications team can go out there and say about the crime bill, it's all about reducing crime. And doesn't everybody want that? Or this proposal is all about cutting your taxes. Doesn't everybody want that? This is about fighting terrorism because we don't want another 9-11. Don't you want to fight terrorism? Well, what's the, what's the slogan here? Build better doesn't work. That, that is, does not tell people how it benefits them specifically. Without that bumper sticker, you're failing as a communications team.
0: I I, I think so. I mean, there, there have been some efforts to push uh, forward on the child tax credit, which has some mi- mixed polling. But you could certainly say, uh, you know, this is a pro-child, pro-family legislation, unless they're reluctant to do that. There are things that are in there. The problem is that the the lack of specificity just sort of leads the you know, uh, contributes to the, uh, I think, suspicion that it's just one of those, these omnibus cromnibus shit sandwich bills packed full of (laughs) pork and goodies and giveaways. I mean, these things are usually nightmares and the public, you know, may, you know, hold their nose and support it. But um, I do think that, that this, this is my, this is my concern is though that is that Biden is contributing uh, to this sense that maybe he's lost a few steps, that he's not leading, that he's not articulate, uh, that um, that that he is he he's not the presidential figure that we had hoped. And I'm saying this because I'm hearing this from even from Democrats and and uh, Democrat leaning independents that you know they may support some of the policies, but those lingering doubts about Biden himself are are there. Um, Absolutely. And, and it was and, fascinating and the, and, on this note yeah, yeah, to listen yeah, to the on.
1: podcast with Sarah, the, the new focus group episode that, that she had with the focus group of Democrats and the fact that they don't see Joe Biden as a leader. And even if he were to lead, they're not sure they'd follow. That's fascinating.
0: Well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, have too many spoiler alerts here. I mentioned in my newsletter, I've listened to another focus group. I'm going to be doing the, her podcast for next week. Ooh. And, and this one was, um, I was not terrible, um, but I would say that Democrats do have an enthusiasm problem, um, but I also think it's important to underline that that none of the people that I heard um, have any interested in voting for Donald Trump again or regret the fact mm-hmm. that Biden beat Trump this time around. But okay. there are doubts about this and also the question of where where's Kamala and um, why has her stature not grown in the vice presidency? Because I think there's real anxiety that if if Joe Biden you know, can't go the distance or is going to be a one-term president, is she really up for it? And I'm just not sensing a lot of confidence there.
1: No, they, they haven't built that foundation well and honestly did her no favors by handing her the border portfolio instead of handing her something like the coronavirus um, package portfolio or even some of the things related to this transportation package and infrastructure package. Uh, even that might have allowed her to go out and present a a much more positive policy image. But again, it's a long time until the next election.
0: It is. Um, okay, so here's something that I know nothing about, but which I sense you are an expert in or have some uh, some insight into. Uh, last week, we f- we heard that the CIA is creating a new center focused exclusively on gathering intelligence about China Encountering its espionage against the United States, which the Washington Post describes as another sign that senior officials are preparing for an all-encompassing, years-long struggle with Beijing. So, give me your take on this. I mean, my first reaction was, "What well, we're not doing that now. We really haven't done <laughs> this." So, so what's what what haven't we been doing, and why now, and what does it mean for the future? You, you've, hit the, you've hit the you've yeah, hit the nail on that. the
1: head. For me, I get so frustrated with these dramatic headlines about, you know, CIA will now focus on China. Wait. There there can be. I mean, there can be such a thing as a transformative reorganization. I mean, you can take any kind of bureaucracy and put the pieces together in a new way that does create real change. And I'll point to CIA after 9-11 there was a dramatic shift of resources um people but also other resources uh collection platforms and other things but a huge shift where you you picked up people and suddenly they were working terrorism when they were not working terrorism before and other issues were fundamentally less covered because of it that's transformative for an entire generation in terms of how you do business we all we have nothing in the new announcement that says we are shifting hundreds or thousands of people to start working on China because we haven't been doing enough. No, what they're talking about is taking all of the intelligence collectors and analysts and engineers and science and technology and digital innovators, all of them who have focused on China. And instead of reporting with some other groups to a common boss, they will be reporting to a boss that is only the boss of China. That is this mission center concept. Mm. That's it. That's what they're talking about. Is that important? yes, it shows a a certain focus. It may help the director, Bill Burns, and his deputy, David Cohen, focus a little bit better on China, but it's not a a fundamental transformative difference. In the announcement, though, they, they did announce a few things that are interesting. They announced a few other organizational shuffles about where Iran and North Korea would be bureaucratically, but it's the same kind of thing. On the technology front, however, they had some really interesting initiatives. They talked about having a a new chief technology officer who would have a corporate board uh, underneath her or him. Hmm. They talked about a new technology fellows program, which is something that has bedeviled the intelligence community forever, which is how do you get people who have real emerging technology expertise on everything from AI to quantum computing to biometrics to 6G technology, how do you get these people who are in the corporate world in america how do you get them to contribute to the intelligence community for a year or two and then go back to industry yeah we haven't cracked that nut yet and they're actually trying to do that with a new program that they're willing to break down some of their at least it implies that they're willing to break down some of their previous reluctance to do so um to me those things are more interesting and i i talked with a former senior cia analyst and emerging tech guru Martin Rasser on today's Lawfare podcast about these very technology issues in the CIA announcement and how those are much more interesting and much more important for national security than shifting around some of the deck chairs in the organization, which has received most media attention.
0: So are there any other stories that you are particularly interested in or that you've been been watching? I have something in my back pocket, but any anything that, uh, that, that you... Uh, that that you're obsessed about this week?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm fascinated by the the jockeying that's going on. We alluded to it at the top, but we're we're now in the fall of the the first year, which means uh, midterms are just 12 months away, or very close to just 12 months away. Uh, the jockeying that happens over the next few months, we've already seen some people say they're not running again, right? And in some cases, those have been you know shrugs of sadness. Uh, Gonzalez is one in other cases. It's been nods of, yeah, of course that person won't run again, but we're in the period where people are going to have to make those final decisions if they haven't already, which then allows people to decide, are they fully into the race or not? In most places that has already happened, but there's a limited time left to decide what are the contests going to be going into the midterm elections? And I think what happens probably within the next couple of months, uh, will, will give us a lot of flavor, uh, especially within the Republican party of, are there going to be viable candidates running in open seats, um, that are not full MAGA Mm -hmm. and on the democratic side, are there going to be candidates running who are in the Slotkin Spanberger mold Mm -hmm. of, uh, more moderate defense focused Democrats, um, or. Is there going to be some kindling, some idea from all of this fight over what's going to get passed out of Congress? Is, is there going to be a push for more uh, progressive candidates to try to take over some of those moderate districts? Uh, that's a fascinating dynamic to watch politically. And I think the next couple of months will be crucial for that.
0: So you're a deeper thinker than I am, because I'm fascinated by this story about uh, all of the um, you know fake gifts that the Trump administration, the Trump officials got. Yes. From the, the I love this story. Uh, Give the Saudis
1: credit. Tell tell the story about what happened here.
0: Let me just read the beginning of this uh, The New York Times story. The Saudi royal family showered Donald J. Trump and his entourage on his first trip abroad with dozens of presents, including three robes with white tiger and cheetah fur and a dagger with a handle that appeared to be ivory. Little that followed went right. A White House lawyer determined the possession of the Furs and Dagger, most likely violated the Endangered Species Act, but the Trump administration held on to them, failed to disclose them as gifts. On the last full day of Trump's presidency, the White House handed them over to the GSA, the wrong agency, rather than U.S. Fish and Wildlife, which seized the gifts this summer. At that point, there was a surprise. (laughs) The Furs, from an oil-rich family worth billions of dollars, were fake. (laughs) It's so perfect. It's just this perfect thing. It's all a scam. It's like they're dyed fur. And then also apparently people like pocketed some of the stuff, which is also so on brand.
1: What part of that is surprising, Charlie? I mean, maybe the Saudi angle in terms of the, the fake fur. But even then, I think, you know, almost all of that seems seems predictable. If you were writing the sitcom... Uh, related to to the presidency. Of course, you would have people taking gifts that they weren't supposed to take. Of course, you would have people if they decided they didn't want them or got caught giving it to the wrong agency. Of course, you would have somebody trying to to flatter the administration with gifts that turned out to be fake because they knew they wouldn't do the due diligence to even figure it out in time. All of this kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it's 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 more it's more veep than than Game of Thrones. But I love the the, the goodie bag thing where there was apparently this these goodie bags were thousands of dollars meant for foreign leaders of the G7 summit. That was supposed to be held at Camp David was canceled because of the, uh, the, the pandemic. The Times says the bags contain dozens of items purchased with government funds, including leather portfolios, pewter trays and marble trinket boxes emblazoned with the presidential seal or the signatures of Donald or Melania, the inspector general continues to pursue the whereabouts of a $5,800, $5, bottle of Japanese whiskey given to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. It will never be found. And a 22 karat gold coin given to another State Department official. So, again, all these guys, you know, slipping out with the goodie bag, drinking the whiskey. It's just... You know, know, a lot
1: of thought goes into, there are protocol officers, especially at the State Department, but they're in the White House office as well. There are protocol officers who traditionally give a lot of thought to these gifts. So it's a punchline today, but there is a diplomatic purpose of having a summit meeting or having some other event. And there's the exchange of gifts. And almost always there's deep thought that goes into it, which is what can we give to show. That we understand you, that there's something about the American experience that connects to your experience, whether it's a, a signed picture of a, a John Wayne portrait, or whether it's something from the, you know, so, something that's interesting to the person. And instead th- they're handing out marble boxes with the presidential seal on it. And they're handing out things like that. It just shows a lack of care for one of the core diplomatic functions that has existed for hundreds of years which is this exchange of gifts to grease the skids for future cooperation. And it's just sad that even that was corrupted.
0: Okay, so one one more thing. I, I have not yet developed a, an opinion on John Gruden um, being fired. Uh, as soon as I saw the story about the, the emails, you know, the homophobic language, the misogynistic language, I knew he was gone. Um, e- even though he's with the Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders. Um, but but I, I guess my only sort of cheap shot on this right now is that, isn't it interesting that the the standards for a football coach who's kind of a jerk, the standards for a football coach are higher than for the president of the United States, at least in some circles. Absolutely. The just in, in passing, just drive-by shot there. I've never, you know... I you you would think that the coach of the raiders would be able to get away with anything but i'm just i'm just waiting for the right wing media ecosystem to rally around john gruden as the latest victim of cancel culture when the guy was basically a you know a bro jerk but whatever i well i think you know. there's a there's there's a difference between
1: the nfl and presidential politics which is the nfl has the mediating influence of advertisers and so if it looks like to the league that there is a jeopardy of protests and boycotts and things affecting advertisers, they're going to care much more so than the president who can speak directly to the people and have people cheering him on. So it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I have not paid much attention to this story, but the one thing I'm very curious about is what it exposes about the culture of the Washington football team, because apparently that's where a Mm -hmm. lot of this happened. And the seizure was of thousands or hundreds of thousands of documents and emails (laughs) and texts. Well, what was going on with the rest of the people around the team? It's unlikely John Gruden was the only one doing this. And are we ever going to find out exactly how toxic the culture
0: was there? I'm I'm guessing we are going to find this out. And I'm guessing that John Gruden was not the only one. OK, so there's one other difference, of course, between football and American politics, which is that when you lose the game, you have to admit you lost the game. I mean, that's, <laughs> you, you can't stand there Ooh. going, we was robbed. It was no, it was a big, you know, you can't stand come back true. a week later and, and say that that was a big lie, but that's so obvious. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. So many of the people that are caught up in this MAGA stuff, uh, are the kinds of people that would have, uh, you know, preach sport, you know, being a good sport to their own kids, in mm-hmm. the past and and that's that's part of the cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. that if your kid behaved in this way you would be just humiliated you'd be angry you'd ask where did i go wrong and yet some of the same people who i mean are are models of sportsmanship in every other part of their lives look at Donald Trump and go yeah that's that's my leader that's my that's my role model whatever so, yep yeah. okay so on that bright note David Priest thank you so much for coming back on the podcast we always appreciate it it was a pleasure and thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. and We'll do this all over again.